Welcome to the Garden Culture Podcast hosted by me, Bailey Van Tassel. I'm a self-taught gardener, busy wife and mother, and small business owner on a mission to live a garden-inspired life. Each month, we will explore what's going on in the garden and fields, as well as get to know incredible people who infuse their own lives with the magic of the garden. For more information on any techniques, recipes, or ideas mentioned here, please visit us at baileyvantassel.com slash podcast. Welcome back to the Garden Culture Podcast. I am Bailey Van Tassel, and today we are jumping into a subject that's really timely. I'm speaking with Brianna from Blossom and Branch Farm about the floral industry and sustainability. And I don't want to be a dark cloud on Valentine's Day and Mother's Day, which are like such lovely flower-based holidays, but I do want to educate and inform you guys on the sustainability issues surrounding flowers. Um, It's something that's new to me, which is why I reached out to Brianna specifically and was like, I need to chat with someone to talk about just the global state of flowers, right? Most of the flowers that we buy or send conventionally are imported from other countries and the practices in growing the flowers and getting them to us, all of that are something I think that you should know about. So Brianna and I will jump right in. Uh, She's an incredible woman. She is farming in Colorado and growing cut flowers and she's done so much investigating and research and she's just a really, really incredible resource when it comes to sustainability and regenerative growing. So Um, For anyone who is a consumer of flowers or gardening when it comes to flowers, you are going to love this. Hello, Miss Brianna. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you, Bailey? I'm so good. Thank you so much for being here today. I'm super, super excited about our chat on like many, many levels. Um, And I selfishly also have to say that I was a ballerina also. Um, uh-huh. although I, I never, never at a professional level. I stopped when I was like 17. Good for you. <laughs> I loved my, <laughs> I I loved my time. As a, yeah. Well, it's funny that, you know, certain companies have certain recommendations and, you know, some will take taller dancers and some won't, but it's, um, everyone always asks me if I would let my kids do ballet and I, my younger one likes ballet, my older one does not, but I never push them into it because, I don't really, it's not that I, I support the arts and I love the arts, but ballet is a very toxic, like, let's not kid ourselves. (laughs) Ballet is a very toxic environment to grow up in when you're young and impressionable. Um, So I'm, you know, I'm glad for the discipline that it gave me, but yeah, I am also happy to have moved on to gardening and be able to focus on something other than physical appearance. Yes. Oh, for sure. Um, uh, Yes. So, okay, that was uh, just starting off with a total digression, but um, <laughs> but, I, <laughs> but um, I continue to learn so much from you and love the perspective and the angle that you take on gardening, on soil regeneration, on getting back to natives, growing flowers, all of the things. But I would love to hear you tell us in a nutshell kind of who you are and what you do briefly. Sure. So my name is Brianna Bosch and I own a farm called Blossom and Branch Farm and we are in Colorado. So we're actually not too far from the metro area. We're kind of 
I would not consider us quite an urban farm, but a suburban farm. Um, mm. So we have two acres and we have been farming it for four years now. And when we moved in, it was actually just a totally abandoned, um, rundown, very overrun property. So we had to do basically the first three years was just invasives removal um, before we could really start rebuilding much. And because we just had to get the invasives under control first. And until I moved to our property, I really didn't understand invasives. I didn't know much about them. I didn't comprehend how damaging they were to the environment and the ecosystem because living on a city lot, it's really hard to see what the repercussions are um, mm-hmm. on a on a bigger scale because most invasives, and I hear this a lot when we when we have the invasives conversation with people, is you know people get heated about it because they'll have something in their yard that they love because it's low maintenance because you, typically invasives are, um, mm-hmm. and they'll say, well, I don't see it spreading within my yard; it hasn't spread at all, therefore it's not invasive. But that's just not the case, as you know. Um, and as an, I now know, what happens is those invasives actually, the seeds can travel for miles. They get spread by the wind. Birds carry them. Um, and, you know, little clippings and cuttings here and there spread. And so what happens is they get spread into wildlife areas and nature preserves and more unmanaged areas like river areas and stream beds. And so that's where invasives are really a problem. Also, abandoned properties like ours. So when we moved in, we had two acres of Canadian thistle and common buckthorn and honeysuckle and um, Siberian elm, just all kinds of, oh gosh, uh, hoary white cre- white top, which is like a crest that's very invasive. And I didn't know, the, for the first year we were here, I was like, oh great, look at all this beautiful honeysuckle growing in the woods. <laughs> this is so pretty. <laughs> and then I, then, you know, I started to question like, well, why is this growing so much? And then I downloaded this plant ID app, um, which I recommend everyone download. Picture this is one the one that I use. iNaturalist is also really good um, if you're looking for, you know, a community that can give you advice if you can't quite ID something. But I started to ID these plants and then I was like, oh no, <laughs> these, are, these are really bad. Um, and then I read a book by Doug Tallamy, Dr. Doug Tallamy, who um, writes some incredible books on ecological gardening and the problems with invasives and the benefits of using native plants. And that's what kind of spurred us into learning more about the damage that the invasives were doing and and just seeing it with our own eyes. I mean, it really, because we had two plants that were battling um, and we had choke cherries and American plums, which are native Mm -hmm. to our area. And then we had these honeysuckles and these Siberian elms. And I could see even just in the first year being here, that the invasives were taking over. And those are really two aggressive native plants. Choke cherries and American plums are pretty aggressive. Um, Mm -hmm. They're spreaders and they spread by suckers. So for the invasives to be even taking over those, it was like, oh, then I really started to see, you know, this is problematic. Um, So we just started by cutting everything down. (laughs) That That took us a long time. I think it was 300 and something trash bags of Canadian thistles that we removed over time. Whoa. And just, yeah, it was just such a, I look at the the pictures from satellite now and you can see the whole strip of like poison hemlock through the woods and you can see it from space, you know, how bad, how bad wow. it was. So That's yeah. So and it's been really, yeah, it's been really incredible to see, you know, the birds coming back, um, our hawks coming back in, the owls have been, moving in. And so it's really been rewarding to see 
the benefits even just in these last few years of of reclaiming that space. That's incredible. So once you guys got the property sort of cleared out, um, you started to rebuild. And then is the farm, are you guys selling a product from the farm? Yeah, or is, so we... Okay. Yeah, we were. Well, so we change a little bit every year what we do. Um, The first few years we were selling cut flowers and mostly that was to finance the, the, the reclamation of the land. So you probably know, but being in a suburban area is very different from being rural. So, you know, if we were in a rural area, we could just drop trees anywhere. Um, Mm. We can't do that here where we are. We have power lines, we have neighbors, we have fences, we have. So whenever we want to take down one of these huge invasive trees, we have to bring in tree services and shippers and rent all this equipment. And so it's, we've spent over just $35,000 just on removing trees and renting chippers and taking stuff out. Yeah. I Um, think um, we have to even get permits sometimes from Mm -hmm. the state, like depending on the tree and stuff like that. But that's such a huge commitment, like to your cause to go the distance on that. Yeah. And that, but that's, and you know, a lot of people will be like, well, why are you, you know, why do you not just grow all natives? Because, and, and I tell them, you know, <laughs> that's the goal. We're getting there. Mm. I mean, I mean, I will always probably grow, you know, a few dahlias. And, you know, I think Doug Tallamy says the ideal is 80% native at, at least. Um, so I would love to get there. Right now, I think we're, we're sitting at about 45% native. Um, okay. So we're we're working that way, but every year we take the proceeds from our cut flowers, and we apply that toward the plants that we need. Um, so on a big space, it's just you know natives are they're more difficult to grow, so they take us longer to grow. They're a little bit more expensive to buy, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And so um, and there's a learning process for us and just learning how to grow them because they tend to be a little bit more difficult to grow from seed. So it's been just kind of this process, this slow process of (laughs) using those profits to put into the land and to um, get it to where we want it to be. So that's kind of what we sell is we mostly do weddings these days. We do workshops and classes. Mm -hmm. Um, Online classes have been great for us. So we've been teaching our online regenerative gardening class. Oh, cool. Yeah. So kind of just... um, it kind of helps gardeners see their garden in a different way. Um, yeah. So we call it kind of like a reprogramming class. <laughs> we come, you totally. come in, and the first thing I say is like, dump everything that you've been taught about gardening, and we're just going to start fresh. And um, and I think that's been really cool for people to see. But so we take that that money, and that all almost all of it goes back into seeds and and plants and beneficial trees. So yeah, we're getting there. And the, is the ultimate goal to continue to farm and sell cut flowers just of native varieties? You know, I think that's a great question. Like, what is the ultimate goal? I'm not sure. Um, we grew a lot of natives last year, but honestly, I really didn't cut many of them because I felt like if I'm growing all these native flowers to support my ecosystem, then cutting them kind of defeats that purpose. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. And even now we don't cut everything we grow. We leave a pretty good percentage for, for the, for the pollinators, but still, um, you know, I'm like these, I don't need these for 
selling as much as the pollinators need them as a host plant um, yeah. and for nectar. So most of them I leave. So I kind of have this conundrum of like, well, now I'm growing all these natives, but I don't want to cut them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So what is the ultimate goal? You know, I really think that my, my passion is in education. So mm. I would love to just be able to grow what I grow and not have to cut it and teach instead. Um, yeah. And we joined Epic Gardening this year, which has been great because Epic Gardening has given us um, definitely a much bigger platform in, to be able to spread, you know, oh, the wow. style yeah. of gardening. Yeah. Cool. Kevin's so that's been super really cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's been really wonderful um, to have their support and their resources. So yeah, working, working toward that, but I, but we have our home farm also in Minnesota, which is um, 250 acres and it's conventional farm. So it's corn and soybeans every year. Um, <laughs> we don't farm it. Uh, my dad is, uh, nearing 80. And so he moved away from the farm, um, when he was actually younger and that's why we don't live there, but we still own it, but our neighbors farm it for us. Um, and my, my eventual goal and what we've been working toward every year with our land, uh, tenants is getting that to a regenerative system. Um, so, trying to take all of the things that I'm applying here on a much smaller scale and figuring out how can we apply them to a much bigger scale. Because that is, you know, when we're talking about agriculture, I don't like to demonize farmers who are conventionally growing because it is really difficult for them to transition. And a lot of people just think, you know, why isn't, why aren't all farmers doing regenerative agriculture? And it's like, well, because you can't flip a switch Mm-hmm. And suddenly just start doing this. There's equipment to be considered. There's, you know, this is their life. It's not like for me where this is, you know, kind of a side hustle. This is their main form of income. And they usually have millions of dollars that they have to finance, you know, that they're still in debt yeah. for a lot of this equipment. So it's not an easy switch. You know, it has to make financial sense for those farmers. Um, you know, a lot of that is the system of food production and the farmers are, you know, not paid fairly for their work and it's not really their fault. They're kind of stuck in the same system, just like the consumer is. So I don't like to demonize farmers, but I would, we, we, we do a lot of testing here of like, you know, let's try this cover crop and then we grow something like corn and see, you know, did, did this cover crop negatively or or positively affect our corn production so that Mm. hopefully someday we'll be able to, you know, work on getting that implemented on a bigger scale. Okay, real quick. I want to tell you about the Kitchen Garden Society. It's my monthly gardening club for all levels of gardener and in all U.S. hardiness zones. We're helping gardeners everywhere save time, maximize your yield, and build your true instincts. Each month in the Kitchen Garden Society, you get a to-do list of what to be harvesting, sowing, and transplanting, as well as what you should tend and task to. You get seasonal recipes and deep dive timely lessons to accompany the skills you're going to need in the garden this time of year. We hear from experts each month and get daily inspiration for seasonal living, as well as the opportunity to share and ask questions in our members-only Facebook group. I hope you'll visit us at thekitchengardensociety.com and check it out. As I was thinking as you were talking about the challenges of taking just your land into being a more sustainable place and thinking, well, that's the challenge on the larger scale too, right? When you're trying Mm -hmm. to change an entire nation that feeds the world to effectively, not just time-wise, but financially, just all of, it's such a big wheel to turn. 
Um, and it's funny, it's been a common theme in a lot of my conversations lately, um, especially with this generation of gardeners and farmers coming up super passionate about regeneration and then how they can help basically the family farm get to that place. But it's it's a bit of a conundrum, I think, for family dynamics generationally and just financially. It's a big, it's a big thing, but I think there are enough passionate people that are trying to move us in the right direction. Definitely. Yeah. There's some great people doing really amazing work and they are scaling it. You know, um, one great book is um, Gabe Brown, Dirt to Soil. And he's mm. actually, you know, implementing these practices and has been very financially successful doing so. And so I think having having a farmer show that is much more impactful. Um, you know, and I often hear people will write to me all the time and they'll be like, have you seen Kiss the Ground? Yes, I've seen Kiss the Ground. Um, <laughs> it's a great documentary. I think it was great to bring knowledge to, you know, more people about soil health. Um, but it was told by celebrities and it was a message that was given by celebrities. And that is not going to convince a farmer to, to do mm. much, if anything. Um, you know, to have someone like, I'm not going to name names, but some of the people in that movie have a private jet and 20 cars. And, you know, it's like, so, so they're expecting a farmer to fix and, and do carbon drawdown and fix the problems of the world on the limited income that they have. And they're being told this by someone who's basically causing <laughs> yeah, the majority yeah, 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 of those yeah. carbon, you know, it's like, yeah. so, so, and then we wonder why they don't take it seriously. It's, you know, yeah, it has yeah. to, it has to come from the people who are trying to do it yeah. and not from you know, a celebrity narrative. Yeah. Well, okay. So speaking, rant. you know, I, I totally get it. Um, <laughs> and I think there would be a, there would be a lot of nodding, nodding heads. Yes. From that <laughs> community. Uh, uh, okay. I want to jump though really quick. So one of the reasons I was so passionate about getting you on here was to talk about sustainability specifically in the florist industry. And I'm super, super like baby newborn fawn of understanding the dynamics. Like I have shaky legs, you know, <laughs> where I'm like, okay, I know that there's an unsustainable system because growing flowers that are shipped all over the world is just like growing food that's shipped all over the world. And the way those flowers are treated and the way the earth and the soil is treated. And then, you know, we're talking about transportation and all that. And I feel like it's really timely with Valentine's Day coming up because everybody's mm -hmm. shipping flowers all over the world. Um, and I've yeah, started it's starting. Yeah, it's starting. It's like starting kind of now. Mm -hmm. So um, I wanted to, I, I guess, get the scoop on what's up with the floral industry in general, kind of where are we at and then what does sustainability look like? And I'm going to, I'll re-ask you these questions because I know that they're loaded. Um, but really my, my most selfish question is like, how do we as consumers stop the cycle or at least vote with our dollars and not buy into the global florist, floral situation? And, and again, this is not to demonize anyone in the florist industry or anything like that, but. Mm -hmm. um, but it is reality, yeah. But it's reality. So I kind of wanted to just, because I really, really think a lot of, people have no idea that they're like yeah. going to the grocery store or they're going to like flowers.com and then what the chain of events is after that. Not also right. to like scare people, but <laughs> I want, right. I want right. to like but shed I light think, on it. Yes. And I, 
whenever we talk about this, you know, I always get, there's two responses I get. One, which is like, yes, absolutely. And usually that's people who already know, like American flower growers. And then I get the other side, which is, oh my gosh, I had no idea that this was an issue. Um, And it's funny because there's been this slow food movement and this local food movement that has, I feel like, caught on much more, Mm -hmm. um, which is wonderful. And I love to see that. But it has not gotten there with flowers. I think we are getting there with consumers. More people are are knowing now and finding out, you know, thanks to education and people like you spreading this news. But um, there's still more work to be done. And it is... It's, I mean, you can't downplay <laughs> the impact. You know, obviously there is imported food. I, I don't want to put it in separate categories because, you know, there, there is still transportation costs, you know, from a carbon standpoint with, with both of those things. But if we're looking at food, at least it's for consumption. Um, you know, at least mm-hmm. people are eating food and there's, there are also pesticide limits on on food imports and that doesn't mm. exist with flowers um oh. flowers are a non-consumable so because they're a non-consumable there's no set limit on pesticide use when those are brought into the country um so that's you know one of the issues so whether or not you care on a personal level whether the flowers that you bring home from the grocery store have been fumigated heavily with pesticides before you get them you know, whether or not that's the case, you know, to, to me, that's a personal, a personal choice. I don't buy them anymore. <laughs> Personally, now that I know what is on them, I don't, I certainly would never put them on my wedding cake and I certainly would never put them on my dining table. Um, mm. But that's just my choice. But the other issue that really requires some study is the impact that those pesticides actually have on the places where those flowers are being grown. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's, it's the classic first world country, you know, we don't have to deal with the, the repercussions of that pesticide use because the poorer countries like Ecuador and Colombia are the ones dealing with it. That's not fair to me. You know, um, the, the, the workers at those greenhouses get exposed to a lot of chemicals and, mm-hmm. um, they've actually been finding, usually this comes out more around Mother's Day when these studies come out, but that the uh, children of the greenhouse workers actually show neurological effects, especially in the times around these major holidays, Valentine's Day and Mother's Day. Mm. They show decreased performance in school, um, and they're not even in the greenhouses. They're just in proximity. You know, there's concern about what of these, what of which of these chemicals are getting into water supply. Mm. What is just brought home on the clothing of the parents who are working in these greenhouses. So. It is a really difficult situation to navigate mm-hmm. um, because, you know, the downside is that if people stop supporting those flowers, then those people also don't have jobs. So yeah. they're, they, it's a, such a multifaceted issue. If you are going to buy imported flowers, always ask for, you know, there's, there's Flora Verde certification. There's certain certifications that, you know, hopefully are being followed and, and, you know, actually being (laughs) adhered to Uh. when they're talking about limits and things, which, you know, from what I hear, some greenhouses are better than others, but, uh, you know, make sure that you're trying to seek out the better choices for imports, which unfortunately usually are not sold at like standard grocery stores. Right. Um, you know, to me, 
from an ecological, and that that's kind of the the standpoint of right sustainability when we're talking about people um, mm-hmm. and labor and labor mm-hmm. exploitation. So there's those issues, but then if you're looking at the carbon issue, that's a whole separate issue to me. The ecological footprint of it's January 13th, so they're starting probably this week. Usually it's the month leading up to Valentine's Day. I think they fly like 30 car- cargo jets per day um, just from Colombia full of flowers, mostly, you know, red roses. And <laughs> the the impact of that, there was a calculation done a few years ago, and I think they said it was more than like um, 360,000 tons of carbon dioxide that's emitted just from that, just from that. So, Jeez. you know, flowers are perishable. So every day they're spent in transportation, they lose value. So they have to get them quickly. So there's so much carbon transportation cost between the airplane, between the refrigerated trucks then that distribute them all over the country, the pesticide use to the labor issues. It's, to me, I don't get enjoyment out of the flowers anymore. Now that I know that, I can't look at it and be like, oh, what a beautiful bouquet of flowers. And I'm certainly not going to bury my nose in it and take a big breath. Um, so so why, am I, why buy them? Yeah. Well, something that kind of alarmed me was when I became way more conscious of seasonal eating was roses aren't in season and yet they're available all the time. Um, and things like that, like right now you wouldn't be able to get in most climates, a dozen long stem red roses that are like thriving because they're not in season. Um, and I'm sure Valentine's day in that tradition is rooted in some sort of like extravagant gesture, which is why that's, (laughs) those are chosen. Um, A little bit capitalistic. (laughs) I'm sure. Uh, but it, it, that was kind of one of those things where, and I'm, I'm really picky now, um, but it's just same. I'm kind of cringy. It just doesn't make sense anymore. Things aren't adding up, you know? And so mm-hmm. of course, once you get better educated, you can't unlearn this right. information. Um, Even if you wish you could sometimes. <laughs> can't oh, I just forget? For sure. Ignorance <laughs> And have a watermelon in January. <laughs> I know. Oh my gosh, I know. Um, I had this major guilt moment in Trader Joe's because I was just craving... I'm so pregnant. I'm like going to give birth live on this podcast. And I just wanted a cucumber. <laughs> oh. Like I was craving like those like crunchy cucumbers. And yep. I was like, these aren't in season. And I just really feel like I want, you know, anyways. Oh, I totally know. The dilemma. Totally know. And then, then you, when you think that you can't have it, it's almost worse. Cause yeah. And I'm like, I have to have this. Um, anyways. So yes. Okay. So with the floors industry, obviously there are major carbon issues. There's soil issues, the labor issues as well. I think people, it's hard to look at these realities. And I worked for a while with a dress company called Christy Dawn. And they're yes. a lovely um, fashion brand focusing on regenerative cotton. And when I saw that I got, they did a really good job of educating a bunch of us on the process of acquiring land and rebuilding it. But they showed us the people that were working the farm when it was not regenerative and it was just, uh, I guess I want to say quote air quotes, like a traditional farming methods full of fumigation and pesticides and chemicals and the farm workers, you can see physically on their hands and arms, um, 
the health issues and rashes. And mm-hmm. I mean, this is major, majorly putting people's lives at risk, their fertility at risk, their children at risk. And when they switched over to this regener- regenerative method of growing, which took a lot of time and money, um, mm-hmm. they saw an immediate change in the farm workers' health. And they saw, I mean, we're talking about like up to their biceps in like welts and rashing, not to get graphic, like trigger warning. No, for anyone. but it is bad. Yeah. But it was like, you got to see it with your own eyes and really understand. I mean, in the fashion industry is like, a, I mean, talk about, it's a whole nother 17th, a whole nother podcast I could start right, to talk about right. that. Um, yeah. Co- yeah. Cotton and, and the fashion industry. Yeah. It's, it's whole, cotton is, is the crop that uses actually the most pesticide because it, it is definitely one of the worst. Um, but yeah, we've seen the same. I mean, there's, there's so many photos and videos of, of people in these greenhouses wearing full hazmat suits, you know? It's, yeah. And you're right. And then you're bringing home flowers that, and putting them on your dinner table and they're just emitting yeah, chemicals and they like into your home. Before they, yeah. Right. And it's not just when they're being grown, it's when they're shipped. So, mm. um, you know, if a shipment comes into, to the States and, and, uh, the same issue is in Australia because they're always very careful in Australia with mm-hmm. bringing in pests. And so if there's anything that's spotted or seen on these shipments, they they destroy the entire shipment or they send it back. And so that's obviously devastating to those greenhouses. So they want to make sure there's definitely no pests that are that are getting there alive on mm. these shipments. So things get fumigated before they ship um, on, the, on the cargo. And so it's Oh my gosh. It's, it's multi-fat, you know, it's not just one process where it's like, okay, it's sprayed once. It's like, mm, it's definitely worse than we think. And there have been studies. They did, they've done some good studies actually in the UK on florists um, and rates of uh, hand skin cancers and things that are focused mm. around hands because they're absorbing that directly through their hands, um, which oh is why God. I always say, if you are going to arrange with imported flowers always wear gloves because you don't want that stuff getting into your skin they're finding it in their bloodstream um and that's not you know i'm not like propaganda or trying to scare people but that that is the fact you know we have there's studies done on it that they're finding these things in their bloodstreams and some of them are carcinogenic so you know just again i can't there are days when it's like the middle of January and I miss flowers and I'm like, I just want to arrange with some, but then I'm, I, you know, I'm, would I even enjoy it anymore? I don't know. I would not. So I don't do, I don't do fresh flowers anymore. I do, um, like paper whites. We force bulbs so paper whites and amaryllis are great for the off season because you can grow them inside. You don't have to heat a space, just put them in your house. Um, dried flowers are great options too. Yeah. And okay, so dried flowers, forcing bulbs, that because that was going to be my question is like, okay, someone's listening and they're like, cold turkey, I'm done with with buying flowers, like on the devastated. Off season, right? Yep. In the off season or, or, or yeah. For so imported. I guess, um, what do you think is best practice for just the everyday consumer in, in enjoying flowers, like Valentine, for Valentine's Day, for Mother's Day, for their table? Like, what do you recommend? Oh, you know, I have been encouraged. What I'm, what I am pushing this year is get your loved one some seeds, get Mm. them some great cut flower collection seeds, get them a beautiful vase and, you know, or an arranging class or buy them a gift certificate for a CSA for a flower farm near you 
so that during the season they can get flowers, but they know where they've come from, they're fresh. It's much more of a lovely experience when you're going to the local flower farm. Um, so those are great ways that, you, you know, if, if you love flowers, it's not like you can't enjoy flowers, but do it more thoughtfully. Um, so those are things that I've kind of been pushing. Obviously, not everyone is a gardener, so not everyone wants to grow their own cut flowers. But if there's a person in your life who does, then what a great gift to get them some beautiful cut flower seeds and a vase and say, you know, here are your flowers for for the for the whole summer. You can grow them yourself. And if it's someone who's not into growing them themselves, then the flower farm uh, gift certificate or CSA is a great option. Yeah. I got into a habit of doing like weekly flower arrangements for the house and then had these epiphanies about how unsustainable that was in all of the drama that we're talking about right now. Um, and realized I just need to take the effort to find local farms that are selling cut flowers or that have CSAs. Um, I know of, I know of one and I can think of a couple others, uh, but I think it's a fun project to approach as well in just making it more widely available and known, you know, like it's a publicity issue. (laughs) Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. Um, and there's, so there's the slow flowers organization, um, which is a great place to start. So if you go to slowflowers.com, um, you can actually search by location and it will pull up um, local flower farms. So that's a great place to start if you're not sure who's growing flowers near you. Um, I always encourage people to start there. And, yeah, because I assume yeah. it would be hardiness zone driven, right? Like I'm in Southern California, so I'm probably actually going to have access to a lot more flowers than you guys. Right. And you will have stuff earlier, um, you know, than we will. And you know, with this conversation, there's always like, yes, there are American grown flowers in the off season. And and I always get this like, but we are growing some, there are people who are inside growing flowers during the off season. Yeah. They're using, um, you know, light and heat because we're not in, this is why people, this is why flowers started being grown in Colombia and Ecuador is because they have more sun year round, you know, they're nearer the equator. Um, here in the Northern hemisphere, we have to supplement with light and usually heat and, um, so there's actually been studies done in, again, it was, I think they were mostly UK based or in the Netherlands, um, about the carbon eat, footprint of growing flowers indoors on the mm. off season. And is that better? Is that a better option than importing? And they actually found that by the time they calculated the carbon emissions of having to heat and light, it was in the off season actually worse to have them grown locally than to have them imported. So when we're looking at just straight carbon footprint without, you know, considering obviously the labor issues and those things. So, you know, yes, you can get American grown in the off season. However, I see, I see that doesn't always make it better, but that depends on your region. Definitely Southern California, you're going to have stuff earlier. Like I know that Epic Gardening, um, Kevin is based in San Diego and I was just looking at his garden the other day and he had a zinnia popping up. So Mm -hmm. Absolutely more, more believable that you guys will have them. In, yeah, you know, I can grow like cosmos as perennials, basically. And yeah, and my roses too. Revenant. I have roses kind of <laughs> year round. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 Must be great. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> looking I know. at like a photo snow. <laughs> we but we pay but yeah, like a yeah. weather tax, basically. You know? Right. So oh, they're yeah. like the most yeah, expensive you cosmos you've ever grown. <laughs> <laughs> but they're worth it. Yes. Yeah. It, so there is, you know, obviously, yes, regional considerations, you know, Northern North America, Maine and upstate New York, they're, they're going to have flowers much later um, yeah. if they're being, you know, field grown. Um, so 
just another facet of the, of the conversation, but definitely no, start I'm, with one of those like, like slow flowers, um, American grown okay. are also good resources. No, I'm glad you said that because I think that is where we get into trouble um, as consumers or advocates or anyone is, is not being able to see the full picture. And there are just so many, I suppose, inconvenient truths when it comes mm-hmm. to food and flowers and the earth and soil and, and all of those things. And I had no idea really about any of it until I started just gardening for myself and getting excited about right. like being a home gardener. Um, right. And I'm very grateful that it's taken me into education on so many matters because I think it's important and it creates just a more dynamic conversation when you start getting to understand the nuance of everything. But it's again, I mean, talk about publicity issue. There's just so much misunderstanding and there are so many industries contributing to issues when I think there are a few sort of scapegoat industries that take all the flack. So just getting a 360 view on it is really helpful. And I think inspiring people to, to just know their options and get to make their own choices and come up with creative ways to, I don't know, not buy yeah, roses in February. Buy roses. Well, and I, I don't know. I don't even like them anymore. I feel like, like I look at a red rose and I'm like, eh, it doesn't, yeah. it doesn't do anything for me, but there are flower farms too that sell. And I think are, are starting to do more dried flower options. We, we certainly yeah. did it last year. I didn't do yeah. it this year because it just became um, a huge, we've just, you know, I, I don't want to be ungrateful for the support mm. that we've received. I am yeah. so grateful for, for our community and they have really stepped up to support us. But I, I personally just got really burned out and overwhelmed and Valentine's day and mother's day for me have always been very, very stressful, just trying to yeah. get everybody taken care of. And so this year I was like, I'm not, but there are lots of local farms who do offer, um, dried arrangements in the winter, the dried- which is a great way yeah, the dried flower movement, I, I'm super inspired by. It. I think it's super gorgeous. I'm loving that like this cottage core aesthetic plays right into the dried flower like themes happening. Right. Um, but I mean, I've even seen like on Instagram, you know, like wreath rooms and dried flower. Just it's so stunning to me. And I um it's an area I don't know a ton about in terms of what to grow and when to grow it and how to, and I mean, it, it's not hard to hang up a bunch of flowers and let them dry, but you know, you, you need to understand the nuance of what to grow, when to grow it, how long it takes to dry and you don't want to get moldy and blah, blah, blah. So right. um, it's something, it's a goal of mine to dig into more, but I think that's a different process than growing and selling a live flower. It is. It, it, and people think it should be cheaper, but really it's, it's really not that much cheaper because you're still starting with like the base price of the, of the bit of flowers you're adding in time for drying it. You have to process them a little bit differently. Like we remove more of the leaves before we're going to dry the flowers and we have to hang them for a certain amount of time. And then we have to take them down so that they don't start to fade. And then we pack them away in boxes so that they don't get, you know, you almost have to like cure them. Yeah, you have to. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a whole nother process. And they're also very messy to work with. Yeah. So when you have like last year, we had our whole flower barn full of dried flowers and it was beautiful. And people would walk in there and be like, Oh my gosh, this is amazing. But it was a nightmare to clean. (laughs) And so I don't want to brush over that like aspect of dried flowers, having a bunch of like prearranged dried flowers on your table is great. 
to be the one arranging them is a different story because you're, and that's why we do it in our barn and we let people come here and do it because it makes such a mess. And it's just, you don't want to be cleaning up, you know, that mess all the time. So we didn't do it that much this year because I just needed a break from cleaning up dried pieces and bits and stuff. But, but it is really fun and interesting to see, um, the things that do dry nicely and some things just dry like on the stem. Mm. And I love those things that Northern sea oats is one that we grew a lot of this year. Um, Mm. well, we grew a lot of it the last three years, but this year it really started to flourish. And as it ages on the plant, it it turns this beautiful bronze and then it kind of bleaches out naturally with the sun. So it has all these different phases where you can just pick it right off the plant and bring it in. So I don't have to like do that hanging process and all that stuff. I can just, I'm trying to grow more of that. I'm like, just dry in the field. (laughs) Let me, we're in the garden, you know, let me come out and cut it and um, not have to deal with all the, all the mess and the work in between. But, um, yeah, I, I like the things that can naturally bleach because there, that is another, you know, there's, Every day I, I go a little bit crazy when I go on Pinterest because I get so many flowers and I get a lot of dried flower stuff. And a lot of the trend now is dyed and bleached. You'll see that a lot at Valentine's Day. So pinks, yeah. you know, and this is part of the sustainability thing is, you know, there's been a lot of, of quote unquote, sustainable floristry movements. And they're like, oh, we're using dried, but they're using bleached and dyed dried flowers, which if you're spray mm. painting a flower it's non-compostable now. So it becomes landfill waste, Mm. um, where it should be a fresh product that you should be able to compost and not worry about it and not have it go to landfill. There's, there's a lot of issues with the chemicals that go into bleaching and dyeing. So, Mm. you know, if you, if you are going to go for a dried, seek out naturally dried and naturally bleached, um, sun bleaching is a thing, but yeah, usually the really, really white flowers are the flowers that are like kind of weird color like blue or like very bright pink right, <laughs> right. typically are dyed. I mean, it just makes me think like, is nature not good enough? Like, and it, and, exactly. and then, and this is like, and this gets into like a human issue too. Like is just, is aging and just being human, like not good enough. You know what I mean? Like right. all of that yep. oxidation. oxidization. Max, yeah. Max like the, it's just the natural beauty that is there that's there in aging and is there in in nature and there are some beautiful um heather up at boreal blooms and she's up in canada does Mm. some amazing dried stuff and these huge beautiful bouquets and so colorful and beautiful and naturally dried and so you know if you want inspiration for like Mm. really great natural dried that's a great source yeah Um, i was gonna say whenever i'm like he was going to ask two questions. One that I always ask, and we'll kind of wrap up with that. But I was going to say, are there recommendations for um, what your favorite, I guess I'll make it two in one. What are your favorite flowers to grow that you feel like are good for the home grower to get the biggest kind of bang for their buck in terms of cut flowers and dry flowers? So for cuts, you know, it depends on how advanced you are. There's different levels. You know, my, my all-time favorite is the Lysianthus because it has like a three-week vase life Yeah, and they bloom for forever on the plant and they're fairly drought tolerant and they're, they're <laughs> native to my area. So that's one that I love, but it's also a very difficult one to start from seed. And we do have a video about how to do it if you want to try it, mm-hmm. but always one that I recommend for more advanced growers. But for, you know, a beginner grower, zinnias, even though, you know, it's 
so I guess people maybe think the zinnias are overdone, but they come in so many different colors yeah, and shapes varieties and sizes. that you don't even know are zinnias when you see them. I got, yeah, I was kind of Yeah, they're like the berries look, yeah, they, they almost can look like, like a dahlia. Yeah. Um, so zinnias are a great option and they do, they're also well-behaved. So, mm. you know, if we're going to put them into, if we're going to interplant in our garden, um, zinnias are a great option because they're not going to get crazy. And that's, I warn people with, there's some beautiful cosmos. Uh, we've actually stopped growing cosmos at the farm because they are not well-behaved. And actually yeah. cosmos are invasive in a lot of the United States, which is something that people many people don't know. Um, but if you've ever grown Cosmos, you know, because mm -hmm. they, they spread really rapidly um, on their own. So a lot of that depends on where you are in the US, yeah. but we don't grow them anymore because I just, A, they don't make a great cut flower. They don't last super long in a vase, but also they, they tend to spread a lot. Um, mm -hmm. So zinnias are great. Snapdragons are also wonderful, especially if you can get the longer, taller ones. Mm -hmm. I also like salvias. Um, oh, yeah. Salvia is a great, great one for bees. It dries nicely and it's a nice kind of spike element. So I, I always kind of like to think if I'm just growing a few things to include different textures and different shapes. So something that's, you know, wider and flatter like a zinnia, something that maybe has a little bit of a spike like a salvia or a snapdragon, mm. and then something that's a filler. So maybe a scented geranium or uh, you can even use herbs as a filler. So basil, uh, is always one that we like to add in there. Oregano is also a really great cut when it goes yeah. to bloom. Um, we grow a few different varieties of oregano just for that purpose. So, but oh, a lot fun. of it depends on where you are, you know, what kind of situation you have set up for your cutting garden. If you're growing just a cutting garden on its own, or if you're interplanting it with other stuff. So always be mindful of height. And um, because some of the cutting flowers can get kind of tall and so they can choke out some of the other things in your garden. So always looking at the seed packet, determining, okay, maybe I should put these toward the back of the garden so that it's not blocking out the sun and in other places for other plants. I love that. This is such good information. And I, um, as people, I, I always want just basic gardening to like there to be sort of like a gateway drug for people to get hooked into gardening. <laughs> and then as you get going on your journey, you know, to really you get dig, sucked in, you get sucked in, but like the getting excited by the nuance of, like you're talking about, you know, what to grow, when to grow it, where to place it, you know, for example, Cosmos being, they are, they have become somewhat invasive in my garden because they just drop seeds they and spread seed. and, mm -hmm. and they're easy to grow, but they are kind of rude because they're just like, you know. They're I'm <laughs> taking over this space. Yeah, yeah, this is mine now. <laughs> um, so just getting to know those things, I think are part of what make gardening this lifelong journey and sort of a lifelong dedication to being better and just always giving it a go and like starting over always with, you know, it's just such a hopeful endeavor in my opinion. Um, I agree. And, uh, and you and I, I know that we've talked about this before, but the, the mental health benefits of, of being outside and being in the oh, dirt yeah. and bringing your kids out there and having them help you. And there, there are benefits beyond, right. Oh my gosh, of course. Just the harvest, so. Yes, for sure, for sure. Well, this has been so enlightening. Thank you so much for joining me. And I'm like so excited to continue to learn from you. You have a really, really great way of educating. So I'm glad that's the direction that you're continuing in because I feel like you do a really great job. Thank you, Bailey. I really appreciate that. I, I hope so. And yeah, if people want to follow along, we have our Instagram. We have a, we're just getting our YouTube like really yes. up and going this Tell year. Tell us so all the places to, to find you. 
Yeah. Yeah. So YouTube is, is where we're like longer information, you know, obviously Instagram and social is always like, here's seven seconds of information, which is never enough. Um, So that's what we've been pushing more to YouTube. And then we also do have two classes. One is a little bit more, um, you know, not advanced, but, but kind of that concept of thinking of regenerative gardening, um, which, you know, if you just want to get started in your garden and you want to start off with this mindset, the regenerative gardening class is a great one to do. I think it's two hours and it comes with a handbook too, so that you kind of have a written thing to be able to, to go back to. And then we also have just planning and planting your cut flower garden, which is actually a three hour class. I think it's a little bit longer, but, um, they're both on demand and that one's a little bit more beginner level. So like, let's just talk about dirt. Let's talk about these things that maybe you don't know about. So more geared toward beginner gardeners. So we're trying, we're trying to get the info out there. Um, working on hopefully a book would all be on your website, like just blossomandbranch.com. Yeah. I think we have everything linked on there. I hope so. Okay. You should talk to my web manager, which is yeah. myself. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Oh my gosh. Don't even get me started. You know I'm always is. like, uh, let me Wearing double check all the hats. that. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Well, thank you so much. Yes. I hope everyone, I will um, link all of this in the show notes, the, the varieties that you mentioned, some of the resources earlier in the episode, you mentioned your website, your courses, obviously potentially going to be diving into both of those myself because um, they just sound incredible. So Anyways, thank you so much. You do. Yeah. Thank and you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Of course. I'll talk to you soon. I hope this episode has been balm for the soul and inspiration for the heart. I would love if you left a review to let me know your thoughts or anything you're interested in learning. And I'm so grateful that you found this space. For more information on any techniques, recipes, or ideas mentioned, visit us at baileyvantassel.com slash podcast.